In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we have a very exciting episode today. We are going to talk about scapegoating immigrants. Mm -hmm. Then we are going to talk about scapegoating immigrants. (laughs) And then we're going to talk about China. (laughs) Um, Specifically, the first segment about immigration is going to be scapegoating immigrants uh, with regard to the COVID outbreak. And then the second one is going to be economic scapegoating of immigrants, which I am very excited to discuss. And uh, we're we're also very excited about the China segment because we've been planning on doing it for weeks and get ready I to feel, poop I yourself. Feel, <laughs> <laughs> I feel so sorry for Michael because like he's he's been so excited about it. Uh, he's had the research in front of him, and we we like some other segment keeps coming up, and we keep pushing it back. Yeah, that sounds like our China strategy, honestly, not just ours, <laughs> the U.S. in general. <laughs> just maybe well, we'll I, figure something else out later. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to learning more about that, Michael. Oh. Um, so, you know what else I am looking forward to learning more about? Ooh, I don't know. Something having to do with COVID. Yeah, the COVID numbers. Ooh, excellent. Well, luckily for you, I've got them right here. Let me just uh, whip out my COVID numbers paper. And uh, so, so far worldwide, we've had 205 million cases, which is up from 201 million in total last week. So that's 4 million cases in one week, um, which is pretty much the same growth in new cases that we saw from the prior week. At this point, 4.33 million people have died from COVID worldwide, which is up from 4.27 million last week, which is 60,000 new deaths, which is actually a little bit better than the week before when we saw 70,000 new deaths in a week. So far in the world, 59 uh, doses of the vaccine have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 55 per 100 last week. So uh, yet another week of consistent vaccination growth worldwide. Um, So far in the U.S., We've had a total of 37 million cases, which is up from 36.1 million a week ago, which is, if you're fast at math, 900,000 new cases in seven days. That's a 50% increase in new cases in one week. Remember, last week, the increase week over week was 600,000 new cases. And before that, it was 500,000. And the week before that, it was 300,000. So... From four weeks ago, we've tripled, tripled the number of weekly new cases. So far, 635,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 631,000 last week. So that's 4,000 new deaths, which is up from 3,000 new deaths the week before. At this point, 50% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is exactly flat from last week and 59 percent has at least one dose so that's just up just one percent from the week before not looking good i take that back i don't want to learn more about the covid numbers (laughs) yeah it's like it's it's really astounding 
we're starting to see COVID numbers that look a lot like this time last year, starting to increase and spike up. Um, and, and while, while we have a solution, right? Like last year was like, well, I guess, you know, we can wear masks or whatever. And now we have a way for people to actually not get COVID actually not spread it. And yet we refuse to do it. Yeah. And of course, the way to prevent COVID from spreading, according to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is just stop letting all of these gosh darn immigrants flow in. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing. Like in the face of a huge rise in the Delta variant, cases spiking, new deaths uh, are, you know, are increasing. One could only hope that the country's leaders are out there on the front lines driving good information so we can all keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. Yeah. Except they're totally fucking not doing that. <laughs> yeah. I Words cannot express my disdain for Ron DeSantis, and hopefully by the end of this segment, you will understand why. So as you've probably heard of, quite a bit for the last week uh one of one of the states with the biggest surge of covid cases in fact i'm pretty sure it's the biggest surge has mm -hmm. been the state of florida so on tuesday 14,787 people were hospitalized for covid not just not just cases hospitalized for covid if we're looking at their daily new case rate there's over 19,000 cases on average, new cases per day, mm. which is an 84% increase in COVID infections over the past 14 days. Hmm. Yeah, we're now, seeing spikes in Florida in hospitalizations and cases that are like outstripping records at any point in the pandemic for the state. It's like yeah. the worst that it's been in Florida. Now, naturally, the response to, to such explosive numbers like this by the uh, the governor of the state would be something rational like hey we should probably make sure that when these kids are coming back to school which by the way they have the highest rate of transmissions uh between children hmm. in in uh in the state of florida because children are people too that can get covid uh, just a yeah. reminder for all the people that are like well all we have to worry about are the old people and then everybody under 75 is fine yeah yeah um, so naturally, you know, of course what he's doing is he's making it so that all of the schools have mask mandates and he's, um, making vac he's, he's actively advocating for vaccines and allowing businesses to at least make their own rules with regard to whether or not they're going to make sure that people have to have vac people are vaccinated before they, uh, they do business with them. Nope. Nope. Nice try. He's doing the polar opposite yeah he actually he wrote an executive order he, he he put out an executive order which like directly makes it so that quote businesses in florida are prohibited from requiring patrons or customers to provide any documentation certifying covid19 vaccination or post-transmission recovery to gain access entry upon or services from the business yeah. So much for neoliberalism. <laughs> well, and on top of that, he's also like he's also violating the uh, state level analogy of 
like states' rights, which is another huge Republican yeah. thing. Like he's specifically preventing any localities um, from instituting any local restrictions. No yeah. mask mandates, no shutdowns, no restrictions of of um, you know operating hours or anything like that. So basically, if you have a local hotspot, they are powerless to protect yeah. themselves or the rest of the state from the spread. And not only that, you know, he, he again, in case you already thought he was wrong, he he can be more wrong. Um, not only that, but he made it so that any locality, any local school board that attempts to issue a mask mandate, not even just a vaccine mandate, a mask mandate in the school risks losing state funding. And he's also threatened to take away the salaries of board members that try to implement mass mandates. Like he's literally taking every tool that institutions in the state could use to protect the, the citizens of the state away from them. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not just in Florida. Yeah. That's the part that's like so agonizing to me is that like, Florida is one of the worst cases of this yeah. particular kind of thing. But like the problem is this is a Republican problem, not just a Florida problem. Like Greg Abbott in Texas um, recently said, quote, there will, there will be no mask mandate imposed. And the reasons for that are very clear. There are so many people who have immunities to COVID, whether it be through the vaccination, whether it be through their own exposure and their recovery, which would be, uh, which would be acquired immunity. He's not very good at speaking, but, you know, you get the idea. Um, first of all, that's not science-based because we know that recovery, pe like people with recovery, lose that immunity relatively quickly. But also, like, we know that even people that are vaccinated, um, you know, still have the potential to, to transmit the disease, to get infected, have a mild case if no, if, or even no symptoms and still transmit it. And finally, we also know that this is a disease of the unvaccinated. So, the, yeah. so the, the idea of saying no mask mandate, even for those that are unvaccinated, is just totally ignoring the facts. And yet, he says, quote, it would be inappropriate to require people who already have immunity to wear a mask. Yeah, okay. We, we, we could give you that. Just require unvaccinated people. But he's refusing to do that. He's And, yeah. and similar to DeSantis, he is banning government entities, including schools, from mandating masks at all. And the thing is, that's having a tangible impact. Last week, Texas's uh, positivity rate um, increased to 10% for the first time since fe February. That's the third highest rate that it's ever been during the pandemic and it's it's a rate at which Governor Abbott himself had previously said this would be a dangerous, you know, this would be a dangerous rate for us to reach. And yet he's still tying, you know, institutions' hands behind their back, uh, preventing people from keeping themselves and their citizens safe and their yeah. children, their literal children. Yeah. And a huge part of it is because of just performative culture war bullshit. Exactly. I mean, that is and their the big thing crutch. Is, this, this here is actually quite personal for me. Um, you know, that, that number that I read about, 
uh, hospital beds that were being occupied in Florida, nearly 15,000. Three of those are relatives of mine, hmm. unvaccinated, in, ho- in the hospital in Florida. And I'm terrified for them. Yeah. And all three of them voted for Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And he let them down. Yeah. I mean, he let down the people that put him in office. He let down the population most likely to vote for him. Yeah. And I, I really hope that I don't lose relatives because of his utter incompetence. Yeah. So naturally, this grotesque level of incompetence warranted a response by him. Like he's been asked about this and he needed to find some way to cover his own ass. Yeah. So uh, he decided to blame. Let's roll the dice. What is it landing on? Immigrants. You got one of those magical one sided dice, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So. In response to uh, to something that uh, Joe Biden had said about how uh, people about how uh, in Florida he was basically actively making the problem worse and that he should basically either get the hell out of the way or help, like actually do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so his response was, uh, and this was talking about Joe Biden quote. He's imported more virus from around the world by having a wide open southern border. You have hundreds of thousands of people pouring across every month. You have over a hundred different countries where people are pouring through. Not only are they letting them through, they're farming them out all across our communities across this country, putting them on planes, putting them on buses. And then he said uh, later in a fundraising letter, he said, quote, Joe Biden has the nerve to tell me to get out of the way on COVID while he lets COVID-infected migrants pour over the southern border by hundreds of thousands. No elected official is doing more to enable the transmission of COVID in America than Joe Biden with his open border policies. (laughs) Let's just pause for a moment and, and realize how blatant it is that this is just a political performance by DeSantis like both Abbott and DeSantis and other Republican governors since going back to June 2020 were blaming immigrants for COVID but now they have someone even better they can blame Biden for immigrants that they blame for COVID yeah it's like it's so clear that this whole strategy is putting Republican voters on the avant-garde of to be just slaughtered on this political on the altar of this political strategy to try to make you know democrats look bad yeah exactly and you probably aren't surprised to know that basically every single aspect of what he said is either a lie Mm -hmm. or he's just too stupid to not realize like what he's saying is wrong, which I mean, I think it's a coin toss. <laughs> like, is he really this much of a fucking idiot or is he just an insidious bastard? Um, but the thing is how incorrect he is cannot be overstated mm-hmm. on every single conceivable level. He is incorrect. Now you probably heard that and you're probably already thinking of minor ways that you've heard about that. He's incorrect. 
It goes deeper than that. <laughs> all right. It goes much deep. Whatever you, however incorrect you think he is, he is more incorrect than that. <laughs> so let's let's look at the actual facts here. So the first the first point to bring up is the fact that um, that so far this fiscal year, more than a million people have been apprehended by board by the border patrol. Now that is a major increase in the number of apprehensions um, since the fiscal year started. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, there's a huge influx of immigrants. There, there's so many more immigrants coming across the border. And obviously, it's because Biden is just letting them in, <laughs> which is basically what Ron DeSantis is claiming. So it's important to understand that that number is a little bit misleading. Mm -hmm. And here's why. So as it stands, there are two ways in which an immigrant might be apprehended at the border. The first way is through what's called Title VIII authority. Now, this is, uh, this is what you would generally think of when you think of an apprehension, all right? Uh, border, border Patrol apprehends an immigrant, takes him into custody, all right? The other one is called a Title 42 detention. And what this, is, and what this basically does, and this, this was implemented last year under Trump, um, it basically is using the pandemic as a rationale for not even for not even uh, taking immigrants into detention, but just like making them go back over the border. Mm -hmm. All right. Just just pushing them back over the border. You know, you're not our problem. We don't have to deal with you. Just go back. All right. And interestingly enough, this has actually been the manner in which this has actually been the result of most apprehensions this fiscal year. So let's look at let's look at just the month of June, for example. So in June, about 178,000 people were apprehended. However, of those, a hundred thousand of them were expelled under Title 42, hmm. which is a majority of them. Yeah. So it's important to note that. Four in ten of those apprehensions were from were people that had previously been apprehended. Hmm. All right, so that means that it's it's not like the one million people who have been apprehended this fiscal year are one million individuals. individual people. In fact, if if you know if we look at that if we look at that statistic, four in ten. 400,000 of the people that have been apprehended had already been apprehended. Mm, which means 600,000. So, there are only uh, 600,000 unique individuals. Exactly. Gotcha. So the reason why there has been such a massive surge is because... We sent them right back. We sent them right back. Oh, my gosh. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, a lot of advocates have actually criticized the Biden administration for continuing the Title uh, 42 um, expulsions that started under Donald Trump. Um, he's justifying keeping it in place because of the pandemic. I feel like that's another discussion. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I, I don't want to get too into whether or not Title 42 should or should not be the, the, the current policy. But what's important to note is that it is which means that that massive surge that Republicans keep pointing towards 
in a lot of ways is kind of a mirage. Yeah, it's just inflated. It's not that more people are coming. It's that people are coming, then they're being sent out, and then they're coming back. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's a change in policy. It's not the change in the number of actual people. Hmm. So that part is misleading. Yeah. Hmm. So the next part that's misleading is the claim that Republicans are making is that immigrants are coming into the United States. They're being processed. They're not being tested. And then they're just being let out into the United States and shipped off all over the place. Yeah, that seems like a totally plausible claim that could we can just accept at face value, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually. So, so we need to look at the approximately 35,000 people uh, in, in the month of June that were apprehended under Title VIII, meaning that they were actually taken into custody. Mm-hmm. So let's look at them. A majority of them, and this is according to Customs and Border Patrol data, a majority of them remain in cu- in the custody of the federal government, state government, or local government. Mm. A majority of them. Gotcha. Others might be turned over to local law enforcement because of outstanding warrants. Those would be people that might have already priorly committed a crime. And the rest are given what's called humanitarian release, which um, basically is a notice for them to appear at a hearing within six months. So... That that right there, the humanitarian release, those are the people that Republicans are talking about. And how many people is that? 11% of those apprehended at the border. Hmm. 11%. Gotcha. So if we think about... So they make the 11, it sound like... Yeah. So they're making it sound like these millions of people are coming to the border and then they're just being let in and let go. It's only 11%. And, and they're, mis- they're misrepresenting what's actually happening. Yeah. So it is true that Customs and Border Patrol aren't really doing a lot of testing. That, that is true. But that doesn't mean that immigrants are just being released without testing. Yeah. So it's not the Customs and Border Patrol people that are doing the testing. You know, because it takes approximately 15 minutes to, to test one person. Yeah. And if we're talking about tens of thousands of people, that really adds up. Mm-hmm. So they don't have time to do that. So what they do instead is, first off, um, the ones that are actually transferred into the custody of the federal government, so the people that are going to detention facilities, when they get to those facilities, usually ICE facilities, they're immediately tested. The people that are not sent to those facilities, those that are given the humanitarian release, what usually happens is they're released to some kind of um, of local group, you know, who will then basically take them in, uh, give them housing, and in almost every situation, test them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, in, in McKellen, Texas... Uh, there is a there's a charity organization called the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley, and they're primarily respon they're they're the agency that are the most responsible for for facilitating uh, transition from um, from the Customs and Border Patrol custody to uh, basically being on that humanitarian release. Um, they test everybody. Yeah, 
in those facilities. And if someone tests positive, they're quarantined. They're given a hotel room and they're quarantined. And not only that, if they came with family, their family's quarantined. Even if their family hasn't tested positive, they're also quarantined. In fact, uh, according to Aaron Relikin Melnick, who is on the uh, American Immigration Council, migrants, quote, migrants in many ways are the most tested group in the country. Hmm. No other group of people in the entire country is being tested at near 100% rate. Uh, again, near 100%. So, you know, obviously it's some are going to slip through the cracks, but most of these immigrants are being tested. They're not being tested by Customs and Border Patrol, but they're being tested by the local agencies that they're being released to or by the ICE facilities that they're being shipped to. They're like we have a better representation of how many immigrants who have just come over are, are, are have tested positive for covid than we do our own citizens. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ivan Melendez who's the health authority in Hidalgo, Texas, which is where McKellen, Texas is. He said, quote, the positivity rate in the migrants that are coming in uh, is almost exactly as the positivity rates here. Is this a pandemic of migrants? No, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And yeah. that's what we keep coming back to is that like when you, when, when you emphasize the Delta variant, when you emphasize migrants, you're missing the point. And in the case yeah. of migrants, you're missing the point with incredibly harmful effects because the point is that this is, at this point, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yeah. And in fact, it is important to note that of the 10 counties that are currently experiencing the highest rate of new infections, and this is according to um, the New York Times and the Census Bureau, data eight of them have a higher percentage white population than the entirety of the united states and nine of them are less densely hispanic than the entirety of the united states mm. yeah nine out of ten yeah so the idea that What's driving the surge is not the unvaccinated, but immigrants is such utter bullshit. Yeah. It is such bullshit. There is no truth to it whatsoever. Like, I actually tried to find some truth. Mm -hmm. I spent time trying to find even a tiny, teensy hint of truth. But there is no fucking truth whatsoever. Yeah. Every single aspect of the claim is just wrong. Yeah. So what Ron DeSantis is trying to do is cover his own ass, cover his own incompetence by targeting a vulnerable group of people that has been historically marginalized by bullshit xenophobia driven by assholes like him. And it is just unforgivable. So, again, this comes back to, is he just a fucking liar or is he the dumbest motherfucker in the world and honestly i don't know so now it's time for a more lighthearted segment tips for good so nathan why do we do tips for good every week 
Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked because we do tips for good every week because wise men said only fools rush in. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I can't help falling in love with you. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. I can see. Yeah, I can really tell. Mm. I have to say, though, I really appreciate that. I am married. um, And so we're just going to have to keep this on the pod. Gosh, shit. <laughs> but that's okay because, because... We can still make the world a better we place. We can still make the world a better we can place. Do that. And that, that is, is something the, real, we can do. the real goal of, of uh, <laughs> this podcast and this segment. So, uh, Michael, in what way are we making the world a better place with our tip for good this week? We are making the world a better place by telling you that... Well, two real things. One, it is a normal thing in the course of someone's life to face financial challenges and financial hardship, right? It happens. People lose jobs. People get sick. In this country, we don't have a particularly robust social like social or financial safety net. As a result <laughs> of common everyday occurrences, people get into financial trouble. And in a lot of places, they've got a lot of support for that, but not in the U.S. And so the, the tip for good today is that if you find yourself in financial trouble, you should, one, recognize that it is a normal thing and do not feel, you know, ashamed. Like so many people, when they find themselves in a situation that's totally outside their control, they blame themselves. And and as a result, they do the worst thing that they could do. They turn away from that, that trouble. They try to ignore it. They put their head in the sand and and they hope that it will go away. They hope that the collection agencies won't call, all of those things. And honestly, you couldn't probably do something worse than that. So the tip for good is if you find yourself in the, the position of being in financial trouble or financial hardship, reach out to your to the organizations um, that may be lending you money. So that's your credit card, your bank, all of these things. If you think that there's a chance that because of, you know, financial hardship, you might not be able to pay your credit card bill um, or something like that, or even some medical bills, like engaging with the organizations that you owe money to is going to be the best path to trying to work that out. You won't benefit by trying to ignore it. They're not going to forget, but they many do have programs to help you out at least a little bit. So in cases where you've got a pay cut or you're unemployed or there's illness or a family emergency, even a divorce or a natural disaster, a lot of companies have programs to help you either skip payments or lower your interest rate um, on those loans or remove fees or even prevent your you know, um, missed payments from being counted against your credit score. Um, and so, you know, all of these organizations have numbers that you can call. A lot of them pride themselves on their customer service. Reach out to them. If you're not getting anywhere with your with the first person you talk to, ask to talk to their supervisor. It's a normal thing. It's it's okay to, to do. And you're not getting them in trouble just because you want to talk to their supervisor. A lot of times those frontline people don't have a lot of power, but sometimes the people that they, you know, that supervise supervises them, they have more power. So the, really, the three things are don't feel ashamed when you get into financial distress. It's normal. Two, 
engage with the people that lend you money, that's going to be way more beneficial than trying to ignore it. And three, if you're not getting anywhere, ask to speak to the supervisor. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we're going to be talking about scapegoating of a slightly different kind, specifically economic scapegoating. So you might you know, be curious, like, why are they de- dedicating two segments, both to, scape- to the, the problem of scapegoating in- immigrants? And the reason is that, like, it's a really big problem, you know, not just from a position of, like, having a just society, which may be a, a, a big goal, but maybe not that practical. No, these have really practical implications. Like, the mm-hmm. fact that Governor Abbott is able to convince the people of Texas that immigrants are the problem means that, you know, he doesn't get widely condemned or threatened to be impeached or removed from office when he issues executive orders limiting the civil rights of immigrants claiming that it's related to COVID, which he did recently and was actually sued for by the DOJ. Yeah. And it also means that Republicans don't get blamed. I mean, I, I should probably say not just Republicans, but like, yeah, um, like elite neoliberals <laughs> uh, don't get blamed for the major problems that exist in the United States. Mm-hmm. We're the only country that doesn't guarantee health care to its citizens. The only uh, the only developed country. We don't guarantee paid maternity or paternity leave. We don't. Uh, we have a federal minimum wage that is embarrassingly low, mm-hmm. and wages have remained stagnant for the last two decades. Um, we are drowning in student loan debt. We are drowning in medical debt. Uh, in fact, one of the, I believe it, this is still true, but at one point I know it was true. Um, the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical debt hmm. in America. Yeah. I mean, people trying to so stay alive many. too hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there are so many major issues in this country. And one of the things that Donald Trump actually did do a good job of in his 2016 campaign is recognizing the complete and utter resentment for business's usual politics. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's the person that went into these working class places, the, these working class towns. He was talking to working class people and said, hey, you're struggling, you're hurting. It's not your fault. The problem is, the next thing he said was, it's the immigrants' yeah. fault. And the thing is, that that's what we need to talk about. Because when we blame undocumented immigrants or immigrants in general for the problems in our country, that creates two major problems. Number one, we're marginalizing people that don't deserve to be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Number two... We're not doing anything to address the actual problems that cause the social, political, and economic inequalities. Yeah. So, 
we actually want to take a little bit to debunk some of the statements and debunk some of the talking points that conservative politicians and conservative commentators often make regarding undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. So the thing- currently there's about 11 million undocumented immigrants, right? Yeah. C- currently that reside in this country. Um, one of the most common talking points is the idea that they're a drain on the economy. All right. They're coming in. They're leeching off of our generous welfare state, which is actually an argument that Tucker Carlson made word for word. Like he basically said, I don't blame all of these illegals for coming over here. I mean, we made a generous welfare state for them. So why wouldn't they come over here? Man, every part of that statement's false. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, first of all, our welfare state isn't generous for the for the citizens of this country, yeah. <laughs> let alone the immigrants. You know, he even went so far in, in, I believe this was 2019. Yeah, in 2019, he even went so far as to say that immigrants are plundering our wealth. Uh. So the implication here is that immigrants take more from the economy than they put into it. False. False. Yeah. Just false. Yeah. So first off, 64% of immigrants hold jobs compared to 60% of native-born Americans. In general, economists say that restricting immigration would weaken economic growth, which is a point that even Trump acknowledged in, in uh, you know, his State of the Union address, I think in 2016. He both tried to scapegoat immigrants and also uh, praised them for the economic boom, claiming that, you know, that illegal immigrants are stealing American jobs um, and also that we need more in order to keep our economy growing, which is true. Because without them, low birth rates in the U.S. Um, would uh, cause stagnation in our economy without growth of our population from immigrants. Last yeah. year, immigrants accounted for roughly 40% of the 2.4 million jobs added to the economy. Yeah. That's a huge benefit. Yeah. And even if we are just talking about undocumented immigrants... Yeah. Again, let's let's talk about the cost. The I like the, the thing that people like Tucker Carlson and Republican politicians want you to think is that we have this I mean, first off, they pretend that we have a welfare state, which is fucking laughable. But second off, they want you to think that the welfare programs that we do have are just open season. Yeah. Which they're just not. Yeah. And that and, and also that like there's there's an, an insidious claim there too, that like if the immigrants weren't taking advantage of welfare, if the illegal immigrants weren't taking advantage of, of welfare programs, you would get more. There'd be more for you. Yeah. According to the National Immigration Forum, um, undocumented immigrants do not have access to SNAP. They don't have access to Medicaid. They don't have access to a supplemental security income. They don't have access to the temporary assistance for needy families Yep. They don't have access to subsidies under the Affordable Care Act, and they're prohibited from purchasing unsubsidized health coverage 
on ACA exchanges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and notice this, that like the racist claim that illegal immigrants are going to come and just bum off the state butts right up against, you know, goes right up against the claim about the economic claim that yeah. illegal immigrants are going to be here taking your jobs. Like, <laughs> The two can't yeah, work I never together. Thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're coming to take our jobs, and then they're going to be lazy and leech off our healthcare system. Unless you have an acknowledge that you have an ex an exceptionally exploitative system for uh, of, of like employing illegal Im illegal immigrants, where you have a system yeah. where they cannot survive. So like something's got to give and none of it breaks in the favor of Republicans and they're talking. Yeah. Against. Yeah. And in fact, the, the programs that I just listed, even if we're talking about legal immigrants, if we're talking about, um, what, what would be called, um, legal permanent residents. They got to be in the United States for five years before they have access to any of those programs. Hmm. All right. Jeez. And furthermore, Undocumented immigrants pay taxes. Mm -hmm. They pay taxes. So, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, if, if a lot of them are paid under the table, then how is that possible? Well, for a lot of them, when they get hired, they will give a either a, a fake social security number or a social security number uh, that belongs to somebody else. And the thing is, the U.S. government is still able to withhold taxes on, on that income. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, the amount of taxes that immigrants pay into the system is significantly greater than what they benefit from in terms of welfare. Yeah. In fact... According to a study from Rice University that specifically focused on Texas, which has a massive immigration population, mostly because, you know, it's on the border, um, for every $1 that the state used to, to um, that, that the state spends for public services for undocumented immigrants, $1.21 is returned in revenue hmm. for one dollar you get a dollar 21 back hmm. i mean that's a hell of a bargain yeah <laughs> furthermore furthermore if we gave these immigrants these undocumented immigrants a pathway to citizenship or a pathway to come into the light and become um and become permanent legal residents their payment would increase, you know, because they're no longer being paid under the table. Mm -hmm. They're no longer being exploited. And what that means is that it would actually create more tax revenue. Yeah. So we have a massive, massive incentive for the public good to give these undocumented immigrants a pathway to citizenship. Yeah. I also want to emphasize that, like, when they provide a, you know, fake social security number or, or borrowed social security number that 
the IRS collects collects income tax on. That's just income tax. At the state level, only 26% of tax revenue comes from income. 24% comes from just general sales tax, which is paid by everyone who buys anything. And so like mm. that's a regressive tax, you know, tax, which means that you know, the people that are earning less are going to pay a higher percentage of their income towards that tax regardless. Then there's other selective sales taxes and licensing and some other taxes that account for 16% and, and property taxes, which account for 31%. Well, where do immigrants live? They could own property. They could rent property. In all these cases, having an immigrant, regardless of legal status, um, helps support the, the property economy help support property values and ultimately property taxes. Like the idea that, that they are a drain on literally any part of the revenue system is crazy. And what's important to note, you know, cause, cause, cause remember what I said earlier, all right. If we gave these immigrants a pathway to citizenship, they would be contributing more in tax revenue Yeah, because their employers would have to pay them like actually minimum wage yeah at least which is already abysmally low so here's the question that i want you to ask yourself who benefits from keeping them undocumented who benefits from that who benefits from stalling any type of comprehensive immigration reform the people that pay wages it's not yeah it's the people that pay wages it's definitely not the immigrants it's not you. It's the people that pay the wages. It's the corporations that employ these people. They don't want comprehensive immigration reform because if these immigrants were given a pathway to citizenship, well then, you know, <laughs> yeah, they'd have to actually pay them like a human being. Or, I mean, not even that because they'd be paying them minimum wage in the United States, but, but still, they'd have to pay them more. And they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, you know, if you're, if you are, you know, if you're hating immigrants because you just, you just don't like brown people, do you think corporations want all undocumented immigrants to just be ejected from the country? Of course they don't. No way. Because they, they, but they want the threat of it to be there mm -hmm. because that Gives helps keep their workers in check. So that's never going to happen. They're never, nobody is ever going to pass a law that just expels all 11 million undocumented immigrants from the country. But the threat of that is important. The threat of being, being deported is important. Mm -hmm. So we, what we basically have is this well-oiled propaganda machine where immigrants come in, they they work for incredibly low wages, which benefits the corporations, who then pay politicians to fuck everything up, not just in terms of immigrations, but also, you know, in terms of making sure that we don't have a comprehensive health care system or that we never raise the minimum wage to a living wage, which keeps wages stagnant, which causes economic hardship for average everyday Americans. And then the corporations turn around, point to the people, the very people, or at least they pay politicians to turn around and point to the very people 
that they are exploiting and say, there, that's the cause of your hardships. Not us, it's them. Which brings us back to that the, the, the second important reason that I brought up for why scapegoating immigrants is harmful. Because it keeps you from actually addressing the problem. It keeps you from addressing the people that are actually corrupting the system, the people that are actually keeping people in poverty, the people that are actually making it so nearly a half of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. It's the people at the top. As it stands, the top one-tenth of one percent have approximately the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90%. And they want to keep it that way. And the best way for them to keep, for them to keep it that way is for us to not look at them, to not blame them, to not hate them, but to hate each other. And especially to hate our immigrant neighbors. Yeah. And the, the thing that we must know is that it is working. And we have to make sure it stops working. A set of Harvard economists studied this question, the perception of immigrants in the United States. On average, they found that uh, native-born Americans wildly overestimate the impact of immigrants on the United States. They estimate, Americans estimated that on average, the U.S. population is made up of 36% uh, immigrants, which is triple the amount that they actually make up they believe that immigrants are less likely to work are more dependent on government aid than immigrants actually are and these stereotypes make them less supportive of social programs that help immigrants the fact is that you know there isn't a huge influx of immigrants the net flow of all migration into the united states in recent years is about 0.3 percent of the total population 0.3 percent 75% of immigrants arrive legally, according to the Pew Research Center. The fact is that this is a boogeyman. This is scapegoating. This is, this is pretending that all of our problems are caused by a group that literally only contributes to our society. time for our favorite segment asshat of, of the week. week so nathan who is our asshat this week well michael it's a no-brainer this week Literally. this week yeah <laughs> <laughs> this week our asshat is outgoing new york governor andrew cuomo Man, I just realized cuomo, how, come on down how governor heavy this episode is <laughs> yeah we never mentioned governors this much but hey they seem to be really making a shit show of things yeah, they have. They have. So I probably don't even need to tell most of you what uh, why Andrew Cuomo yeah, is our asshat this week. Say, do we even need to, <laughs> to ask it? I mean, enough said. What did he so, do? <laughs> he apparently is a creepy motherfucker who um, has sexually assaulted women, sexually harassed women. And what's funny is in, in the video that he released, his, his whole defense... He was just talking about like, oh yeah, you know, they're just accusing me of kissing a few people on the cheek. That's just how I say hi to people. You know, there are lots of pictures of me doing that. No, you idiot. That's not what you're being accused of. What you're being accused of is 
putting your hand up women's blouses, uh, running your hand along women's legs, um, touching women's breasts. Like, and if you think that that's the equivalent of kissing someone on the cheek, that might be your problem right there. <laughs> what? It's just how I say hello. Yeah. Oh my God. Dude. <laughs> Dude. Come like, on, man. We went and changed the rules on him before women in the workplace had no power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, that's basically that, that, what he's saying. That was one of his defenses. Yeah, is that, is that one of his things defenses. have just changed? Yeah, things have just changed. Okay, look, I, you know, I don't think that you should be kissing people that haven't consented to it on the cheek. Yeah. Like, I understand that there are some. There are some places like in Europe where that's just culturally what you do, you know, and, and I would, I would be willing to like, I, I would be lo- willing to be like, okay, well maybe it was just like, maybe it's just a cultural thing. That's just how he greets people. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people that do that. Like, you know, it's something that you need to stop doing, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I, I wouldn't be like you're a garbage human being. I would just say, hey, you know, some people don't like that. Stop doing yeah. it. Especially but that's when, not what this motherfucker is yeah, doing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, when people and come also, forward and tell you to stop. Like if someone actually says, stop, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, and there was a huge slew of allegations of sexual harassment, like instances of him, um, you know, him making creepy comments to some of his younger people, like uh, there was this one woman where he was like, Oh, I, I date a 20 year old or, or some shit like that. There are instances of him, um, like wanting people to strip for him. It's just what a fucking creep. And the thing is the Democrats really haven't lost much with this guy. Yeah, He's a shitty ass governor. He was a corrupt piece of shit. And, and you know what else? Like, let's also not forget the uh, the nursing home scandal, which still feels like it's been a minor blip on the radar, mm-hmm. where he basically he basically made it so that COVID positive um, patients in nursing homes would have to basically be kept in the nursing home, so where they could infect all of the other people in the nursing home, and then he lied about the numbers that they had. That he 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 purposely misrepresented the numbers that were coming out of positive COVID testing in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Like we're not losing much with this guy. I totally agree. Fuck Andrew Cuomo. Seriously. So congratulations to Andrew Cuomo for being our ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So for our third segment tonight, China, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. We wanted to talk about China. Um, and Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's China that we're talking about. That's why we keep talking about it. Um, so, so there's a challenge here, right? Because, at the, like, because in some ways, I think we have taken a little bit of our eye off China, partially because the, the bullshitter-in-chief himself, Donald Trump, talked about it so much and so flippantly and it was kind of like well i don't know about you nathan for me it was like well i mean anybody that that trump cares about this much i this much is like probably to me not that big of a deal like (laughs) getting this asshole out of office is way more important to me than than paying attention to china and also like when someone like trump 
talks a lot about um, China, they always their their main thing is that it's communist, communist China, yeah. which means that yeah. that as soon as they say that, it's like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Like, like yeah. that's the thing about when people claim that communi- that uh, that China is communist. It's like, well, no, they're authoritarian. Um, yeah, but like not significantly communist. They haven't they haven't um, democratized the means of, of production or, or capital or anything like that. Like they're not like they're not yeah. communist. And so yeah. the fact that every that Republicans simultaneously beat the drum of China, yeah, and talk about it so ignorantly, yeah, makes it seem I mean, like not, it shouldn't. It's not actually that big of a deal. Let's not forget that. Um, uh, it's it's also referred to as the People's Republic of China. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they call themselves communists. the The ruling party is the Communist Party, but they're no more they're no more communist than they are a republic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> that is spot on. And so, and so, to start off, like what we're talking about in this segment is China's long term bid to become the world's superpower, the leading power economically, militarily, politically in the world. And so, you know, when we talk about that, I think it's, I think it's important that we not just conclude that because it's not going to be America, it shouldn't be anybody, (laughs) you know, like it's a pretty, it's a pretty U S centric viewpoint that like, Oh, well, America should just be the leader of the world and anybody else is a threat. And like, yeah, I don't think we should just take that at face value. Yeah. But the thing is we don't want China to become the leading global power. Like the United States, which built, um, like the post world war two institutions of the world in their own image we could expect China to do the same thing. If they were leading the global world order, um, they would, you know, shape, and their, their intent appears to be to shape the global political norms um, to resemble China. And, and we know that Beijing is in this, like, full press to, across the system of the United States, to enforce a hierarchy of national sovereignty which trumps human rights and that's the big thing to know about china that we should be really worried about is that they are not concerned and we see examples all over the place they're not concerned with the violation of human rights when compared to um the sovereignty and the power of the state or uh and certainly not as they they if they get in the way of economic growth or uh you know the hegemony of the sovereign of, of a like the populace and so which is not to imply that the united states is particularly concerned about human rights around the world no you're absolutely right around certainly not around the world and you know you can argue that like the record of the united states has been poor at times and fluctuates over time what we do not quite have is like prison camps like they do in yeah. China. 
Yeah. Like domestically, of course, yeah. we're 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 way better yeah. than China. We we do not have concentration camps in which we send Uyghur Muslims. Yes, exactly. We yeah, and we do not like systematically exterminate people. We do yeah. not have like single child policies, which China did for a while yeah. and doesn't anymore. Like yeah, and we also have freedom of speech. We do so. So we have the right to criticize our government's anti-human rights policy around the world. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, at the very least, the United States leans into human rights around the world. Like, we don't, we may not be, we, we do not have, by any means, a great record. But we do sanction countries for human rights violations. Now, to be fair, only when those countries don't have other things that we want. Um, yeah. Saudi Arabia, <coughs> Israel. Yeah, exactly. But but at the, but to Nathan's point, the the most important thing is that our political structures, and the ones that we have tried to put in place around the world, um, and in the and across the international order, um, have been meant to be responsive to the needs and the wills of the people. Which, you know, if you're listening to this show, uh, we've talked about a lot and is is really important um and so as china aims to be the leader of the world um and we'll talk more about what they're doing to try to get there one of the major advantages they have had over the past few years is that the u.s has stepped back from its position of international soft power and influence so as the U.S. has rolled back our presence internationally, China has stepped up. And I don't mean military presence so much as participation, leadership um, in these different international organizations. Um, so where the U.S. steps out and leaves a power vacuum, China is more than willing and has more than enough influence to step in. The only downside for, you know, for countries that interact with China is that they have a mixed record on human rights abuses which you know if if you're comparing that to the incredible economic benefit you could get from partnering with them from allowing their influence in um especially if you say well you know china's bad at home but you know they're not gonna in you know bring international or like uh you know human rights abuses yeah. internationally the benefit of partnering with china is really high and so like yeah it's pretty clear that they have this this that this ability to influence all over the world. Yeah. It's almost like reverse the United States, it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we we have terrible human rights abuses abroad, but, you know, relatively decent domestic policy. Yeah. Um relatively, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that relativity is compared to China. Yeah. Um and with China, there's definitely less of the exporting of that. There's definitely less of, um, you know, th there's less Chinese imperialism yes. around the world yeah. than there is American imperialism. Yeah, especially in the Western world. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And China does have a distinct advantage in, in one really important way in interacting with the international order. They don't care about human rights abuses or authoritarianism which opens up the yeah. opportunity to partner with nations that the United States specifically tries to ignore in spite. 
Um, God, it's so convenient to just not care about morality, it, isn't it? It, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. It's, it's a huge benefit for a state not to care about morality on an international scale. They get to do whatever the frick they want. <laughs> um, and so, and so those are kind of some, those are like the real underpinning reasons why we should care that China is attempting to become this global power. And not only are like, we aren't just inferring this, like they have, so president Xi in 2017 announced a new era for China and said that they should quote, take center stage in the world. So they're no longer like disguising their global political ambitions in the way that they did, um, you know, for many, for many years after the founding of the Chinese communist party. Um, at this point, they are clearly aiming for a dominant, for the dominant position in the world. And so then the question becomes, should we worry? So one is, should we care, right? If they had this position, would that work? Would that be okay? And the answer is probably, we don't want them to have this position. And the second question is, should, do we think that they could actually have a plausible path to accomplishing this? And the answer, in my opinion, and as I've done more research on this, is yes. Not only because of the United States stepping back in, in a lot of ways over recent years, um, because the role in the United States in the world fluctuates with our leadership, um, but also because like China is putting in place multiple potential strategies for gaining political, military, and economic influence around the globe. Um, so one potential path is for them to achieve this like global dominance by focusing on building out their presence in the region, so specifically around China. So basically taking that, building a stronghold of influence and power in the area, and then using that as a springbo springboard to gain influence and power abroad. So specifically, they would, they would need to um, form strong influence and alliances with, the other, with other Asian countries. Um, that would be, that's like the, the step one. Um, and they, they would, you know, they do this by, there's a few methods, but one is by exporting Chinese people, right? Like, so you get people who are loyal to the Chinese government to move abroad and influence abroad. Um, and you also do this by establishing economic ties and dip diplomatic ties um, with your neighbors. Um, so this is kind of similar, actually. But the thing, like, think about how much economic power, how much political influence comes out of Asia. S like, a huge amount of like Asia is an economic powerhouse. It produces a huge amount of the world's goods, a huge amount of the world's uh, intellectual property. Um, and, and, and China's really investing in that economic influence on all fronts and has been for many, many years. Um, so they're aiming to be, you know, the powerhouse at producing not only goods, not only uh, technology, but also thought leaders. Um, Education is one of the most important things and has been emphasized by the Chinese Communist Party as being the path to making China great. Um, and so, like, you know, these are all areas where China is investing domestically in order to leverage their influence abroad and also in their region. And so if they're able to actually get kind of a 
um, a veto over the security and economic choices of the neighbors in their region, they can weaken the American influence in the region. We have a heavy diplomatic and military presence in um, the South China Seas. We're heavily diplomatically connected to Japan and and um, and so like the United States is very present there. But to the degree that China can gain influence in the region, to the degree that they can um, invest in their defensive military operation to take control of the South China Sea, the Sea of Japan, um, they will be able to further and further expel the U.S. military presence and further solidify their power in the region. Um, and so they do this by, like, they've been focused on Taiwan for many, many years. We already know that they're focused on Hong Kong. Um, they establish, you know, they've got relationships with North and South Korea. Um, they have, the you know, growing relationships with Japan. Um, th like, they are actively developing their relationships in that area. They're also investing heavily in air defenses, quiet submarines, anti-ship missiles, um, basically in order to be able to say, sorry, U.S., you're not coming in here anymore. Like, they specifically defy U.S. Uh, naval and air forces in the area, um, all trying to kind of power trip in the area and say, you know, like, this is not your playground anymore. And they're more and more getting able to do that. So that's kind of one path that they then, so they, they establish this block of countries in Asia and use that to then gain more and more influence abroad with China as the head of all these other nations. The other path that they could have, which in my opinion seems like the one they're pursuing most aggressively, um, is to build a new economic order internationally where they are the economic leader in the same way that the United States is the economic leader now. This is kind of what the U.S. did after World War II, where the U.S. was establishing uh, international standards. The U.S. was basically leading the world into the modern economic era. And so as we move into the era of technology, of like advanced technology, the era of uh, computation and all of these things, there's a new opportunity for an economic leader to emerge. And so if China is able to dominate that sphere, as well as the more traditional spheres of manufacturing and shipping and things like that, they could plausibly uh, gain this international power and influence that they can then turn that economic power and influence into political power and influence. They are significantly investing in this strategy. Um, and so they are like investing in the Middle East, in Africa, in establishing like deep water ports in these areas and loaning money um, to nations like to nations all over the world. Um, so they're they're establishing like these various huge infrastructure pro projects. Um, and they are um, one strategy is called the Belt and Road Initiative, which actually is something that they've been investing in for like, you know, five or so years. Um, and basically they're building physical infrastructure across Africa and Eurasia. And not only are they doing that 
you know, with their own money and their own power, but they're lending money to these different nations to do it for themselves with China as the main participant, the main beneficiary of those things with the logic being, you know, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat forever, loan a man money to take fishing lessons and he'll feed you forever. (laughs) So like, so, so do you mean to tell me that the United States diplomatically withdrawing from the entire world for the last four years wasn't the best idea? It was not the best idea. But the thing is, I don't think we would have stopped this just by being present. You're right that, that China is trying to throw its diplomatic weight around. They have put more diplomatic posts around the world um, than the United States at this point and are persistently expanding um, their influence and expanding financing of global product projects, as well as like, you know, pushing the world on, um, you know, setting some climate standards and trade and, and, and developing trade institutions um, and trying to influence like economic rule setting bodies. Um, so they really are, have this, like they really have this full press to invest in not only the traditional infrastructure of today economically, but the intellectual um, power to influence the world in the future, the technological power to be the world's supplier of technology. Um, They're investing in the military power to dominate not only their region, but ultimately have diplomatic and military influence all over the world and um, and they are more and more entwining themselves economically with the growth and and future economic potential of you know starting with smaller nations smaller nations that you know are in desperate need of economic investment but that will grow and increasingly gaining influence with larger economic powers so it's Time to start shitting ourselves. I think that time has passed. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it is time to really take this seriously and not. Yeah. And the thing is like the way the Republicans deal with China is to scapegoat it just like they scapegoat everything. It's to say the problem with the U S economy is China. So we're going to put embargoes on China. Um, and the U.S. election, too. Yeah, the problem, yeah, the U.S. election is being corrupted <laughs> by all of these things. All they do is they pretend, the, the crazy thing, the, the worst part about their strategy is that they are pretending that there are problems with a nation, that there are actual problems that we should try to solve that we're not focused on because the Republicans are pretending that there are fake problems that we should solve. And so, like, China is a really big deal. It's someone, It's some. it's a power that it's a fire really that we have been stoking for many years hoping that they would be satisfied with regional power and influence hoping that our military off their shores would be just enough of a thorn in their side that they wouldn't try to contend with us but the fact is that they're much too smart for that and much too ambitious and so like i don't know what the way forward is for the united states but it can't just be more of the same. 
All right. Um, oh. And so now we will end the show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week is something that you know and I know, but I probably shouldn't say it on the podcast. <laughs> so I will, uh, I will hopefully be able to say it soon, potentially next week. Um, and there will be hopefully more to add to, uh, to this, to this highlight. And it could potentially be another highlight next week, but (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm being so mysterious. (laughs) Nathan's highlight is being a cryptic bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, hopefully I'll have more to say about it next week. We shall see. Michael, what's your highlight? (laughs) My highlight is actually the same, pretty much the same thing that was an anticipatory highlight last week, which is um, over the weekend, I got to go on a really long bike ride with my twin brother and my oldest brother. Um, We, over Saturday and Sunday, we rode for 110 miles. We did, the first day was entirely in torrential rain. Like there was literally, we were literally getting flash flood warnings while we were riding. Um, And it was really fun and quite an adventure and exhausting and awesome. So that's my highlight. Awesome. Hope you had one. Hope you had uh, a bunch of fun. Yeah, man, it was great. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again.